Uh, then the railway police cocked their little submachine guns and not just cocked them, but pointed them very deliberately to us. So that is the preliminary to opening fire. And I could honestly see, as a young, young officer that I was, they're in the seeds of the Third World War. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Major General Sir Robert Corbett was the last commandant of the British sector in Berlin. We start his story with a description of his first experience of Berlin as a young army captain commanding a military train across East Germany into West Berlin just weeks after the Berlin Wall had been built. We also talk about his subsequent army career, including his interview with British Foreign Secretary Geoffrey Howe and his early days as the Commandant of the British Sector in Berlin. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help us grow the number of listeners and help us get great new guests on the show. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you can get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter. And you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Major General Sir Robert Corbett to our Cold War Conversation. The fall of the Berlin Wall, that amazing time, and those days which quite literally changed the world. And I was lucky enough to be there when it happened. That's what the Germans call a good uh, good bit of timing. But I was there. In the late summer of 1961, I went there as a very young reconnaissance platoon commander in my battalion. I was a Ricky platoon commander in the 1st Battalion Irish Guards, a lieutenant. Uh, And in the late summer of 1961, after the war was put up, uh, I was given the task of taking if not the first, one of the very first resupply trains, military resupply, sent through on the rail link uh, from uh, West Germany to, to Berlin. In part, I think, to actually test out the link, and in part, obviously, to bring in military supplies, fuel oil, rations, ammunition, and the like of that, uh, from West Germany to the British garrison in Berlin. So that was really... Uh, in that late summer of 61, that was my first experience of one of the most amazing cities on earth. Right. And what what was that first crossing of the inner German border like for you? Very strange. And it always was strange. There was distinctly a feeling of menace about it. And I guess this was because all our training and really the whole of our lives as, as young soldiers of the Cold War was geared towards uh, the potential business of having to uh, stand up to the Soviet Union. And here we were right on the frontier, uh, effectively of the free world and of the communist world. And when you crossed over, 
into a country of the Warsaw Pact, but a country that was a really hardline communist state. Uh, I can tell you, and when you were confronted as we were, we always had to deal, of course, with the Soviets, not with the East Germans. That's the way it was. But there was a distinct feeling uh, of menace about it. Although, certainly, as I remember it in all our dealings with the Soviets, things were done very correctly, uh, and that in itself was impressive. But it was, I think, uh, an American expression was, it was awesome, I can tell you. And particularly <laughs> awesome for, her, for a very young officer, young infantry officer such as I was, a young fellow. And and when you said there there was a, a feeling of menace, how how did that manifest itself? Was it the the stance of the troops, or or you know how did you how did you notice that? I think it was really uh, being confronted with all the paraphernalia of a, a pretty what we knew, of course, but was a pretty repressive regime: the guards patrolling with dogs a load of barbed wire, arc lights because it was at night when we went across, dogs all barking away, people you knew taking photographs of you from behind, uh, little moving curtains. And somehow or another, the, the Soviet sentries in their huge great sort of greatcoats, I mean, there was something um, distinctly menacing about it. And then, you know, I when I had to march down the... Uh, platform to go and, and see the Soviet station commandant to get my papers stamped. I took with me the two biggest guardsmen I had, great big strong fellows, and uh, that gave me a great deal of confidence. I suppose it was because of the situation as between East and West then, but it was really quite, um, if you allowed it to be, which we didn't because we were trained not to be, but if you allowed it to be intimidated, I can tell you, it certainly would have been. It would have been. Yeah, and it, it would have been a tense time being quite recent after the, the Berlin Wall had been put up. So I, I guess, you know, potentially both sides were quite tense as to how each side would react to that. Yeah, and it was the dividing line between the free world and the communist world. And frankly, um, for a youngster like me, it was actually, in a way, um, quite shocking, actually. I remember it now, but you know, we just got on with the job. We knew uh, what we had to do, and it was we beyond that. Actually, I tell you, it was fascinating as well. Fascinating to see these people at first hand and to get a feel for how they operated and so on. So that in itself made it all actually really um, rewarding and, and really exciting. I mean, we were just doing our job, of course, but it was a very good way to be doing it. Yeah. Yeah, no, ab absolutely, absolutely. Now, I understand that you had a, a bit of a problem partway through the mission. Uh, yes, uh, from the time that we entered East Germany with an East German driver who was determined to give us as much grief as he could, kept on stopping and starting the train with, without any warning at all, and there was a great sort of clanking of machinery and hissing of steam, attempting to give us a hard time he was behind. So uh, every time we stopped... We left the train in small um, parties from the platoon to patrol it and prevent it, as I say, from being interfered with or being boarded. Uh, and uh, uh, hereby hangs the tale, because um, here I made a, a potentially very important mistake in that um, we were up all night long, obviously, watching what was going on. And it was very striking 
to see that we, uh, as we went through Magdeburg, uh, that's to the, uh, just on the Elbe, Elbe River, just before first light, in the very early hours of the morning, the tank workshops were all, you could see the art building and so on going on. So it was plainly obvious that in these huge workshops, this was a 24-hour operation. And, and that was, to, to us, interested in, in the goings-on, to put it like that, on the other side of the frontier. Uh, this work was going on as a 24-hour operation. But just to tell you what happened, we, we got several kilometers east of Magdeburg. We'd crossed the Elbe River and, and passed just, a, just off the first light at a party. I think there were about 12 of them, as far as I can recall, of East German railway transport police. And they were armed with those nasty little Russian submachine guns, the ones with the Ryan magazines with vented barrels. And we passed them uh, rather slowly. I didn't think very much more about it. But very shortly after, the train ground to Alton here, that I made a really uh, potentially very serious mistake. My poor lads had been up and down the train like, like crazy all night long. So I decided this time that I would do the forward patrol forwards up to the front end of the train with my platoon sergeant, which is not something I should have done. I should have left him behind in the guard zone, but I, excellent man, someone I was very fond of. So we went together, he on one side of the train, me on the other. And sure enough, we got right up the far end of the train when with a mighty clank, the train um, moved off. So we jumped onto the nearest wagon, which actually happened to be a, a, a fuel buzzer. And uh, looking back down the line, I could see that one of my guardsmen at the back of the train uh, had missed, missed his footing and failed to get onto the platform at the back. So uh, we then immediately, I, I said, get, get the brakes on, and there were, there were winding wheels on the back of this uh, particular wagon. So we wound them down. They made absolutely no difference. The train was gathering speed. So simultaneously, um, I think I told him what to do. Carrying our rifles, we both jumped and, and uh, by the grace of God, managed to get onto the platform at the back. Uh, we hauled on, really, as the train was uh, moving along. Ran inside, hauled on the airbags. train came to a grinding halt. Uh, and we managed to get the, uh, the guardsman who had been left behind. He was called Guardsman Kelly. There were so many Kellys in the Irish Guards that they were all recognized by their last two numbers. This was Kelly 46. He was a wonderful man. Absolutely as strong as an ox, but not um, exactly queuing up for membership of Mensa. But he was a he was a great guy, and they had tried to arrest him, and he'd thrown the arresting policeman to, to the ground. Then this resulted in a confrontation uh, with me standing on the platform with my soldiers behind me, which got so heated with they saying, release this man to us, he's trespassing on the sovereign territory of the German Democratic Republic. All this in German, uh, conducted by me in German and them to me. And uh, me saying, no, you can, you can be off. You're not getting anything from us. And it got so heated that my platoon sergeant, thinking, well, I suppose I must, I reckon he probably thought I must support my young ass, ordered my soldiers to cock their weapons which is, of course, uh, a, a dangerous situation anyway. And as soon as that happened, uh, then the railway police cocked their little submachine guns and not just cocked them, but pointed them very deliberately to us. Uh, and that was dangerous because that is the preliminary to opening fire. 
And I could honestly see, as a young young officer that I was, they're in the seeds of the Third World War. But luckily, eventually, seeing that they weren't going to get anything uh, out of us, they they withdrew. It took us a long time to bleed the air out of the braking system on the train. We had a radio and were able to explain that we were delayed, but not why, for reasons of security. Uh, and eventually we arrived into the great um, railway sidings at Spandau, uh, very, very much delayed, of course, as a result of what had happened. Uh, I saw to myself, just got them into their accommodation, and then went to report myself uh, to the brigade commander of the Berlin Brigade. He was Brigadier Rex Whitworth. I went to explain what had happened, fully believing that uh, I was going to be court-martialed as a result of it. And I said, I'm very sorry, sir, but this is this is what's happened. Uh, and if I've done wrong, then I've done wrong, and uh, I'm sorry. And he looked at me and said, no, Corby. He said, you've done exactly the right thing, and uh, you're not to worry. All is well. Write your report. We will log it. And then we will look after you uh, in the remaining time that you're going to be with us here in Berlin, and we will show you, uh, we will show you the city. Uh, and what you have done is entirely... Correct, and there is no fault uh, resting with you. <laughs> a big sigh of relief, uh, and from that time onwards, then um, things were easier, and we had an absolutely fascinating time seeing that place, seeing the very beginnings of the war, and being able to get around and, and um, knowing that uh, we were going to take the easy ride back down in the sealed military train to our brigade in Hoboken. Yeah, that's a really uh, it's a really interesting uh, s- story that because were were you not supposed to talk to the East Germans anyway? Um, but I guess in that situation you couldn't avoid it. Oh, there was no there was no alternative. I mean, yeah. they they were you know they were there on their territory on the railway line. Uh, if I hadn't talked to them, I, I don't think we'd have really been going anywhere very much. But by great good fortune, um, and this has something to do, I think, with why I eventually ended up as the British commandant in Berlin. I was reasonably fluent in German. And um, I'm very grateful to my dear old father, who made sure that as a youngster, I learned the two main European languages, German and perhaps to a lesser degree, French. And, you know, how clever it was of him that he did that, because actually, of course, in the end, uh, it really um, it, it sent me the way... I went, and I'm very grateful for it. And that was essential to be able to communicate with them. And um, I think if I hadn't been able to do that, the whole situation actually would have been really very, very much more difficult and possibly more dangerous. I don't know what you think, but that's you know how it appeared to me now. I think you're right. It sounds like you were able to take the you know the heat out of the situation by communicating with them. Whereas if if you'd been unable to communicate, as you say, with weapons cocked. Anything could have happened. It could, indeed. You're, you're absolutely right. But anyway, I've never forgotten it. It was a, it was quite a sort of um, illuminating start to my connection with Berlin. Yeah, quite a baptism. <laughs> yeah, baptism. That's a better word. Yeah. What is so absolutely extraordinary? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. 
So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It's the way in which, you know, I was involved in that, that first time very early on, at the time of the building of the wall, and I was there at the time of its dissolution. I mean, it is really extraordinary. Uh, the, 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 and in two sort of totally juxtaposed um, appointments and positions of responsibility, but isn't it, isn't it amazing, really? Yes, yeah, no, in, in, indeed, indeed. So can, can you can you tell me about what your first impressions were of Berlin and this this tour that you had of Berlin and because you would have seen the early version of the Berlin Wall as well. Pretty much the first place we went to was the Reichstag, the German Parliament building, completely bombed out, um, open the roof gone, open to the sky, and with the interior walls covered with a whole load of Russian graffiti with a long, long steel ladder in the southeast corner, which we climbed up to the southeastern tower in the, in, in the building, where there was an observation post established by the British Army, looking down uh, onto what was the beginnings of the building of the horseshoe of the wall uh, below and on the west side, of course, of the Brandenburg Gate. And um, it was uh, that was my first my first uh, sight of the wall, I, I guess. Uh, and we didn't see anything of East Berlin. That wasn't we wouldn't have had any possibility to go across uh, into East Berlin. But what we did see of West Berlin was extraordinary, sort of glitzy. But I have never forgotten that even then there was a strange atmosphere of in that place of. It was almost like kind of uh, live now, but tomorrow none of us knows what the day may bring. In other words, a little bit of sort of um, live for the moment. And and funny enough, I think that the atmosphere in Berlin was always like that, and that was the way it was. Um, and definitely one could feel it like that uh, when I was first there as, a, as a, a young soldier. And it was still to a degree like that when I was there so much later on. And you could obviously your description of the Reichstag shows that you could still see a lot of the damage from World War Two around as well. Yeah, there was a terrific amount of, of, of damage in that building, but of course, what had happened in West Berlin was a very great deal of reconstruction. Much of it was what you might call a pretty light nature because the stuff had to be brought in either on barges by canals or or by air. Uh, and by rail, so you know the construction was 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 pretty sort of. Um, I'm not going to suggest it was in any any way um, sort of badly built, but uh, it was modern stuff. Whereas, of course, when later you got across to East Berlin, uh, you could see something that was uh, you know just totally different. Um, low lighting, terrific amount, particularly when you got off the main streets. When you got off into Day Linden, for example. Uh, there were buildings with a great deal of war damage still in them. A lot of pock marks from from uh, from um, small arms and indeed much heavier weapons fire, uh, and an extraordinary sort of 
smell of, of brown coal and that kind of thing. It was quite different. And so um, East Berlin, yeah, there was a great deal of war damage still right up to the time of German reunification. Uh, and obviously a lot's been done about that since. But West Berlin was, was very, uh, I might almost say sort of very modern, but very almost sort of flimsily rebuilt because, of course, it had been 75% to 80% of the city had been destroyed by uh, daylight raids by the United States Air Force and nighttime raids by the Royal Air Force uh, in the later stages of the Second World War. Yes, yeah, no, in, in indeed, indeed. I always thought of East Berlin almost being like a film set. And you're right, when you used to step off onto Den Linden, behind the, the facades, you, yeah. you'd find it looked like World War Two had finished yesterday. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was very um, dim and it was very grim. And over it all, you know what an evocative sense of smell is. There was this smell of the ubiquitous brown cola, which was that surface uh, mine coal, um, very sulfurous, which the East German regime used for so much of their energy because they couldn't probably afford too much else. And it had a particularly sulfurous smell about it. And when you got across into East Berlin, that smell, you could smell it in the West too, but my goodness me, you could half smell it in East Berlin. So that and the sort of dim lighting and the pockmarked buildings and the actually very often rather glum-looking people uh, definitely made for a world of difference between East and West Berlin. Of course it did. Yeah, yeah. And how long did you stay there? Were you there only a matter of days before you were back out again? 48 hours. Wow. <laughs> Very well looked after. You know, I could write a report about it all afterwards. But it was quite a sort of sanitary experience, that, that, first, uh, that first visit to uh, West Berlin. It aroused a curiosity and interest in the place, which um, never left me, actually. Uh, but I never thought, of course, uh, in a hundred years that I would ever have come back in the world in which I eventually did. That's extraordinary. I mean, that what is that? You know, that's fate, really, isn't it? Well, yes, it it is. But, yeah, because you, you obviously, after after that point, you had a, a very illustrious military career in order to... <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky, I tell you what. I was really surrounded by good people, and uh, I was incredibly lucky. I had a really interesting life, and um, and some real, really interesting adventures. And what I remember saying to my father, Dad, I'm, I'm thinking about getting, I was going to go to university to read modern languages. I'm going to go and join the army because I had two years to wait before I could get in. And are you sure? He said. I, I, yes, I, I, that's what I want to do. And of course, once I got into it, I joined as, as, a, as a young foot guards in the Irish Guards recruit, private soldier. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a slightly unusual story, really. But uh, what a, you know, how lucky can you be? Yeah, yeah. And can, can you just give me a brief synopsis of, of the roles up to 1989? After that, I became a pathfinder, which is a specialist kind of parachute um, soldier uh, responsible for the reconnaissance and, and marking of, of drop zones for main parachute drops, that sort of thing, you know, requiring a, a lot of sort of unusual skills. 
I, I did that. I then became a rifle company commander and uh, then decided that it might be a good idea to go and earn some money for my family. So I left the army for a year and became a stockbroker and hated every single moment of it. And luckily, was able to get back into the army again. I lost the uh, seniority, but managed to get it back again eventually. And was lucky enough to be able to be allowed back in. And I'm so grateful for the fact they did, because, of course, it showed me exactly what it was that I wanted to do with my life, which was not to be a wave-faced commuter for the rest of it. But I really wanted to be back with the people who had become my friends. And I'm not just talking about my brother officers. I'm talking about all of us, the soldiers, very particularly so. And uh, then what happened, I was lucky enough to be able to command the 1st Battalion Irish Guards, an armoured infantry battle group uh, in an armoured brigade in Germany. And then I came back from there to the staff job. I'd been to the staff college in the meanwhile. And also, rather surprisingly, I'd been to the United States Armed Forces Staff College. And I'd been on a range of courses in the States, all sorts of things. Served with the French Army, with the 3rd French Marine Parachute Regiment. Commanded an independent parachute company, where I got actually quite severely injured, but that's another story. I managed to recover from that, and eventually came back with the, after commanding my battalion, became the Chief of Staff of our Forces in the Falkland Islands, and Deputy Commander there, in the clear-up phase after the the Falklands War. Very interesting job. I did that for a year. A completely fascinating job because of its tri-service nature. It was really interesting. Very hard work. Mm. Came back from there, commanded our parachute brigade, which was a terrific privilege. I was the oldest man in the brigade by 10 years, <laughs> but still managed to keep up with them. And then from there, went to the Royal College of Defense Studies, which was the third period of staff training that I'd had. The Army Staff College first then the United States Armed Forces Staff College, then the Royal College of Defense Studies. And then I became the Director of Defense Program Production in the Ministry of Defense. And then suddenly, out of the blue, uh, was sent for and and asked or ordered, I might say, appointed to go to Berlin. And so that's how it went. Right. And and being commander of the British sector in Berlin was presumably quite a plum role in the British Armed Forces, was it? I think you could probably say that. I mean, it's extraordinarily fortunate, Ray, to to be given that responsibility. And as it happened, to actually be sent there to the place which was to become the centre of one of the most important, if not the most important, turn of events in the later part of the history of the 20th century and to have been there as British commandant at that time and so much depended on the decisions and work of the three Western Allied commandants. Extraordinary bit of good fortune. And I always wonder, you know, really why and how it happened. But I think it was uh, it was understood that I, you know, I'd had a very wide experience, uh, military experience, uh, it was known that I was a reasonably fluent linguist, which I think helped. And I remember um, w- one day um, sitting with the then chief of the general staff, who was a wonderful, wonderful man, very fine soldier, called General Sir Nigel Bagnall. And I remember at the end of our conversation, he just um, casually saying, oh, um, 
Robert, I understand that you speak French and German reasonably fluently. Is that true? And I said, well, yeah, it's after a fashion, so yes, I do. And I often wonder if that wasn't the catalyst for the fact that I eventually ended up going to Berlin as I did when I did, because languages are always important, but in that context, they were actually crucially important. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. It's a unique combination of languages that you'd require in, in that role, because ordinarily French wouldn't be high on you know, the list of languages that somebody in the British Army would be required to speak. Yes, that's right. But of course, it mattered. It, and, you know, I had been with the Third French Marine Parachute Regiment, so you know, I, and I had been brought up to speak French. And uh, in Berlin, for example, within a day or two days of arriving, I was invited to go and visit the French garrison under General Francois Cannes. And at the end of my inspection of the huge serried ranks of these marvelous French soldiers, uh, I was able to address them in French. And you could see them absolutely swelling with pride and pleasure. And of course, between us, there was never the slightest dichotomy or difficulty. Because, you know, they could say, or General Khan could say, il est francophone, he speaks French. This is extraordinary how life works, isn't it? But this was very, to be very important because of the complexity, the complexities that were coming our way, the relationship between the three Western Allied commandants as being one between people who could work well with one another and did trust one another, above all trust, was crucially important. And that was the way that it was, uh, as between Francois Can, who incidentally I had served in the same part of the French army as him, so that just made us. And I wore French parachute wings, so that just made us friends. And then uh, General Raymond Haddock, who was the United States commander, was an exceptionally able man. Uh, and he and I uh, really saw very well eye to eye. And I'm sure you can understand how important that the trusting and close relationship was uh, between us in the difficulties, really, and comp complexities that were coming our way. And, you know, towards the end, uh, when so much was happening in, uh, uh, in Berlin and around Berlin uh, that required constant, not, not just constant contingency planning, but replanning uh, and meetings, very frequent meetings between the three of us generals, the fact that we were, as it were, good and trusting friends, mates, was uh, was to turn out, I think, to be very important for the outcome of the whole thing. I mean, whether that's generally recognized now is another matter, but I can tell you it is a fact. No, and I can imagine the, the importance of that in particularly a very fluid and fast-moving situation to have all three commanders of each sector's thinking together and, and working together. In a time when so much was changing, almost literally hour by hour, you know, and there, and there was such a potential for the whole thing to go off the rails. So we really did need to we did need to be able to speak to one another, and and, and fairly um, pretty much constantly as well. And and that worked. I'd say that worked extremely well. Yeah, and we will we will come on to that in the not too distant future. But I wanted to um, hear about your final interview with Geoffrey Howe, the British Foreign Minister. Yeah, uh, I had a I had a lot of uh, of uh, preparatory briefings, as you can imagine, military and intelligence, of course, 
but also diplomatic because I was, you know, to be Her Majesty's representative in Berlin. So I had to, uh, I had diplomats, a really excellent um, collection, if one can call it like that, of, of, of diplomats under, under my command, and unique in the armed forces for that to happen. And my deputy was a foreign office minister, so I had to go and see Sir Geoffrey Howe. Um, it was absolutely, I mean, he was really, really nice. I'm not sure, you know, how much I came away sort of filled with confidence at the end of my of my interview with him, but he, but he was extremely courteous and, and, and really um, very interesting to talk to. And I remember completely clearly saying to him, but sir, can you please tell me, you know, what is the chance of any kind of change uh, in the situation in Berlin? What chance of, 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 the, of the situation developing at least for the better? And I remember him saying, well, General, you might find that the war may over time become perhaps a little bit more porous. But essentially, there will be no really radical change in our time. And those were pretty much exactly his words. And, um, you know, I, of course, didn't forget what he said. But in the light of what happened, it really is a reminder of how so often in life, things turn out in exactly the opposite way that you might logically be expected to have them happen. And, and uh, you know, it was the exact opposite of anything that anybody ever thought would happen. So that, that was really the, the gist, the burden of my, of my meeting with Sir Geoffrey Howe, uh, which was very interesting. And, you know, I, um, I, I much enjoyed meeting him, actually. Yes, yeah, he comes across as one of those... Um, gen- gentleman politicians. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he certainly treated me in that way. Uh, and there was no question of you know, getting up on his high horse and giving me the heavy, the heavy shoulder. He's exactly the opposite. But I do think that you know, no, no change in in our in our time, General. Um, you know, when you think about it, when you think about what happened, it, it's quite um, a, 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 an interesting reminder of how wrong we can all too easily be. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So when in 1989 did you arrive in Berlin? That's been January. Right. It was January 1989. There had just been a change of government uh, from the CDU, Eberhard Tipkin, the governing mayor, to the SPD, uh, much more left-wing, uh, uh, and the governing mayor was Walter uh, Mompa, who became a very – he was a great – friend of the Allies, and uh, he became actually quite, uh, quite an important um, personal friend of mine. I should say, and I still keep in contact with him and, and his wife, Monica, uh, right to this very day. And they, we write to one another, and, and you know, when he heard I was ill, he was extremely supportive and so on. And, and he, he was to prove a, a great ally, and he was particularly, he'd spent quite a lot of time in Britain. I think he... I think he was fond of the British, actually. And he listened to us in an interesting way. When there were problems as between the Western Allies and, and, and the administration of West Berlin, um, under the guidance, of course, of the governing mayor, it was always to us, we Brits, that uh, he came to resolve any problems that there might be. And my German friends say to me, my Berlin friends say, say to me, no, this, this is the way that it was. We all knew that's the way it was, and we were thankful for it. But please don't think that it's like that now. Isn't that sad? 
Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We've lost it, I'm afraid. Very sad still. Yeah. Maybe not entirely. But anyway, that was the way it was then. And um, it was Valka Mompa, who was, the, I think, very good governing mayor and very supportive of everything that we allies were trying to do uh, in our support and protection of the of the people of West Berlin. Because, the, you know, technically you were still the occupying power, but what what sort of freedom did the West Berlin uh, mm. government have to, to do things and, and change things? It's, it's, it's such an interesting question, that, Ian. The, the um, governance of West Berlin was quite rightly and properly done uh, through the democratic processes of the Berlin Parliament, and, and absolutely right and proper. But because of the post-war arrangement that had been thought up at Yalta and then confirmed at Potsdam in July '45, none of the laws that were passed in West Berlin could be ratified uh, until they had been signed off by the three Western Allied commandants, the, the generals, uh, in the Allied Kommandatora. Uh, in, uh, that's a horrible Russo-Germanic term, but actually this was the way in which in the post-war period, the governance of the ultimate legislative and executive power, I suppose one could put it like that, uh, was vested in the persona of the three Allied commandants, and nothing, no law could be passed without their, without their agreement. I mean, it sounds very archaic, but this was the way uh, in which the system had worked. The Soviets had paid no part in it since uh, the summer of 1948, when the Soviet general, General Kotikov, had marched out of the Allied Commandatora, which was in a wonderful old um, insurance company building on the edge of the Grunewald, very atmospheric place. And there, just down the passage from the room, the main room where we used to meet, was a door with Cyrillic writing upon it. Uh, and when you went in there, everything was exactly the way it was, left exactly the way it was when that Soviet commandant uh, had walked out in the summer of 48. And his photograph was still on the wall, scowling down at us. And I sometimes think people used to think, well, will they come back? And they could have come back, uh, and nothing would have stopped them to come back. Legally, they could have come back, but of course, they didn't. Now, isn't that fascinating? But there, that was still there, and that was still the way it was. Isn't that fascinating? It had been like that in the whole of the post-war period uh, until the whole thing came to an end, uh, and there was the signing of the agreement uh, between the powers. Uh, and it is absolutely extraordinary, and that's the way it was in that during very atmospheric place it was, too. It is fascinating. That. And Did no, you know that? I didn't know that the. I, I knew they'd pulled out, but I, did, I hadn't realized that their office had just been left there waiting for them in the intervening years. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was kept clean, um, and the Cyrillic writing was still there on the door. Everything was exactly the way we'd left it. His photograph was still on the wall. Yeah. But that was it. Yeah. Mm. No, that's. Amazing, it's it? fascinating. And I think that's why Berlin is fascinating because there were all these rules and regulations. And somebody uh, who I've interviewed described it as Berlinology, which is sort of like the understanding of all these rules of occupation and who can talk to who yeah. and who can travel yeah. where. Um, yeah. it, 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 is, it is a fascinating. Well, it's a, still a fascinating city for me, uh, e even today, I think. Yes, and this is is very recent history. 
uh, and it's still, you know, it's still alive and, and, and very much so. I, I think it's, it's so good that you're doing what you're doing because what you're going to do is to help to keep these stories, which are part of a whole um, fabric, really, of, of, of European history, world history, uh, alive. And I think it's very good, you know, that you're doing what you're doing, if I may say so, please. Well, that, that's, that's very kind of you to, to say that. Sir Robert, that's absolutely the aim is to, is to capture these stories firsthand from the people who were there. So you know the students and people who are interested in the future can yeah. can hear these stories firsthand and then uh, learn from them too. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have so that we're not condemned to repeat the mistakes that some of our forebears have made. Absolutely, absolutely. We haven't got a very good track record of that, but yeah. I, we but... haven't, have we? I, I agree. No, we ain't. Now, Spandau Prison was demolished, I think, before you arrived, but uh, a British Forces supermarket was built on the site. Yeah, it didn't have long to run before our withdrawal from Berlin. So, yes, they did. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think I did the opening. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no, maybe I didn't. No, I think no, Princess Anne did the opening. I was present at the opening, I think. But, uh, yeah, I, I um, the, the engineer commander, who was the major commander of the engineer squadron in Berlin at the time, a chap called Andy Harris, who's a very great friend of mine. He being one of my um, staff, excellent staff officers in the headquarters of the parachute brigade when I commanded it. And um, he said that, you know, he spent some time alone in that prison after Hess had died, uh, making plans for how it was to be destroyed. And he said it was the spookiest place he'd ever been in his life. And, you know, you go down these great long sort of galleries with graffiti on the walls and people who were probably on, on their way to their execution. And he said he really, really felt the hairs going up on the back of his neck. But I never, you know, I never went inside Spandau's prison, so I don't think about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine a big building like that and just walking around there on your own to be really um, unnerving. Yeah, he said it was really yeah. horrible, horrible, horrible atmosphere yeah. about it. Anyway, I, I know, you know, I didn't, I, I saw it, obviously, in my earlier visit, but but I, it wasn't around when, when yeah. I, uh, it had gone yeah. by the time I got to Berlin. Well, I, I heard that the supermarket that was built on the site, the British troops called it Hesco's. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That's typical, isn't it? The great British Army humour. That is absolutely <laughs> typical. They've got a good name for everything. And the wit of the average British soldier is something it's just something you, you never it's so utterly brilliant, you never you never get over it. Are you a soldier yourself? Uh no, I'm not. I'm not. My father served in uh World War Two. He landed in Normandy. Oh and, well done. Yeah. Um served right the way through to the uh the German surrender. Was he a sapper or an infantryman or what was he? Uh he served with fifty first Highland Division. He was in the Middlesex Regiment. Uh, yes. with uh, Vickers machine guns mounted on uh, Bren gun carriers. Yes, yeah. And he was a wireless operator for a platoon commander, and he I've recorded his story um, before, he, before he died, and it, oh, no, it, it's a really in, interesting tale. And it's sort of, to some degree, is the catalyst for me doing this to you know, this yeah. this project to some degree. but well, um, you're, you're doing him honour by doing that. It's a very good thing that you are, if I may say so. Very well, good. no, that's that's that that's very kind. That's very kind. Um, I wanted to ask you what the 
plans were if the Soviets invaded West Berlin? Oh, my God. Well, we're going to leave you on a uh, cliffhanger there. So if you want to know more, make sure you're subscribed in your favourite podcast app. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. A special thanks to Jeffrey Jones and Nicholas Butter, who are supporting us with $30 per month. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information